This is a podcast of First Presbyterian Church of Trenton, Michigan, a gospel-centered community seeking to glorify God by making, maturing, and multiplying disciples. For more information, check out fpchurch.tv. We will have two scripture readings this morning. Uh, The first is from the Old Testament, the book of Haggai. It is the text that our sermon will be based on today. Uh, And the second scripture reading is from the New Testament. It's from a related text that can be found in the book of Hebrews. So first, the book of Haggai, chapter 2, verses 20 through 23. The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I am about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms and of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders. And the horses and their riders shall go down, every one by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. The book of Hebrews, chapter 12, verses 25 through 28. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised. Yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Good morning. It's a humbling thing to come to a pulpit that literally is not this 120 years old. This pulpit's not literally 120 years old, but the church pulpit here at First Pres is um, 120 years old. And as you stand behind it, you recognize that you're just one of many who have stood behind it to proclaim the Word of God. And as a church, we gather to hear that word, to be encouraged by it, to be reminded of our need of Jesus. And I believe this morning our text points us forward-looking to Christ, and so may we find Him as He is declared in the text. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we gather here in this place, and as we recognize that we stand upon the shoulders of those who've gone before those who you called out um, and have chosen for the work to start a church in Trenton some 120 years ago. Lord, it's it's amazing to to know that, Lord, we've been blessed by that work, a work that you have done through your people faithfully. And so, Lord, we take it as no small thing to 
to be receivers of your word this morning, to know that we have a responsibility to continue passing the good news of Jesus along. And we pray, Lord, that you would use this morning to redirect our attention, to redirect our hearts. Lord, the world is filled with noise and and, uh, false solutions. And we pray, Lord, that we would not be more in love with the things of the world than we are with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray that our eyes would be fixed upon Him this morning, Lord, that You would redirect us towards Him as He is the anchor of our faith. He is our refuge and hope. And so, Lord, as we struggle, as we, as we have difficulty in life, Lord, may we run to the place where the hope may be found, where those before us have pointed us. And may we continue to point others in that same direction. God, I pray, pray for my own words this morning. I pray that you would fill my words, Lord, with your words. I would not say anything more nor less than you've given me to say, but God, I would be faithful to your word this morning, that your people would be filled. And God, as we pray each and every week, we pray that we would be changed, conformed more and more into the image of your beloved Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray this believing you will do even better than we know how to ask or pray. We pray this in Jesus' name. And God's people said, Amen. Amen. Can you agree with me this morning that there is nothing like receiving a word of encouragement, right? A kind word, a word of hope. As you think about it, um, those, those words of encouragement, those words of hope, are kind of like a, a healing salve on a wound. We live in a world where there is a lot of brokenness. There is a lot of, of sin. And in that world, we notice that those failures aren't always just ours, but also the sin of others or the failures of others. And so when we hear a word of encouragement, when we hear a word of love, it's a, it's a, it's a good thing. It's a cooling thing. It's a, it's, a, it's a restoring thing. And as you think about that this morning, I would draw your attention to our text because that's exactly what this little book of Haggai has been. It's been an encouragement, a a healing salve to a group of people that in many ways have been struggling. What we encounter in our text this morning, verses 20 through 23, is really the last, it's the fourth and final message of the prophet Haggai. And interesting enough, our particular message is the second message on the same day. Now last week, Jerry presented the first message on the 24th day, if you look at verse 10, now here at verse 20, we see the second verse on that same day. Now I can just imagine the prophet, he gives the one message and maybe goes back to his little home and maybe he's resting in his easy, easy recliner, right? And all of a sudden, the Lord says, nope, get back to work. And so now he's got a second message and this message is for Zerubbabel, uh, the governor, and his job is to go and proclaim the words that we have before us to that Leader, Let's look at those words, beginning at verse 20. The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day. It says in verse 21, Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the thrones of kingdoms. I am about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders. And the horses and their riders shall go down, every one by the sword of his brother. Notice the language here that Haggai uses in this 
fourth and final message. As he's speaking to the governor, he says, um, shake, overthrow, destroy. He's using words that sound of an advancing army as moving in. And this advancing army is the army of the Lord. And the Haggai is specifically mentioning this to Zerubbabel as this is a message from God to him, but not exclusively to Zerubbabel, but to Zerubbabel's people as well, the people of God, the, the remnant that went back to the promised land. Now, let me remind you that, that we have a story here of some, some magnitude. The story is really this, that the people of Israel had been living in disobedience to God. And God sent many prophets to warn them, and they wouldn't listen. And so God ultimately disciplined them and put them in exile, time out, for 70 years. For 70 years, they waited. 70 years, God was working in them and sanctifying them. 70 years, they waited. And after that 70 years, a remnant was finally called back to the promised land. And God used a, a man uh, by the name of Cyrus, who was king of Persia, to actually do this as he allowed the people to go back for a purpose, and that purpose was to rebuild the temple of the Lord. They were to keep their focus on the worship of the Lord. They were to go back and worship the Lord. And so you would assume the story is going to be one of very positive news, that they go back and they build the temple and everything's good. People sing Kumbaya and they hug each other and they worship and that's the rest of their days. Unfortunately, that's not what happened. This wicked people that had to be disciplined for 70 years and finally got out of that discipline, ultimately guess what happened? They went right back into disobedience. And that's where the story of Haggai picks up. See, the people were supposed to be busy worshiping the Lord, but what they were busy doing was ultimately taking care of themselves. And they were building their own houses, beautiful houses, houses with paneling and, and all kinds of, of extras. And Haggai has the job to call out this governor and his people for disobeying the Lord and not keeping the main thing the main thing. Two times in Haggai chapter 1, we're told that he says, consider your ways. Consider your ways. What are you up to? What are you doing? Consider your ways. Now, this is where the story begins to actually take a positive turn. The people hear him. The people hear him and they repent. And you know what they do? They stop working on their houses and they start to dedicate their time and attention to the house of the Lord. But as they're doing that, according to the book of Ezra, we're told that outside influences try to discourage them. Outside people try to come in and tell them that what they're doing is a waste of time and, it's, and they shouldn't be doing it. And, and they, they send threats back to Persia that, that the people of Judah are going to have an uprising because they're trying to build their worship temple again and they're, they're doing their own thing. And so you can imagine the people become very scared. And then that's when Haggai begins to speak as, as from the Lord that he has a word of encouragement, a healing salve, hope, to this people. And that hope is found in the advancing kingdom. That hope is found in the power of God who protects his people. And again, I draw your attention to key words like he will shake the heavens and the earth. He will overthrow the thrones of the kingdoms. He will destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations. 
These are encouraging words to the people as they hear this. And this message was not exclusively for Zerubbabel, but for the people as well. This was really a promise of of the last days. This was a promise that the last days were going to begin and, and that their excitement should be that God is with his people and God will protect his people. See, this message was a message of reassurance of God's everlasting love. This is a a message that God has promised to care for his people and that his plans have not changed for them. Now imagine that just for a moment. All their wickedness, all their sin, and God says, I still care for you. My plan for you still remains the same. I'm going to take care of you. Church, I don't know about you this morning. That's encouraging to a guy like me because I'm a flawed man. And to know that God is unwavering in his love and care for his people is an encouraging thing. And yet, even notice the language that God uses here. It's not like, I'll do this if. God doesn't do that. God ultimately says, I will do. Listen to what he says. He says, I'm about to shake, to overthrow the thrones of the kingdom. I'm about to destroy the strengths of the kingdom, to overthrow the chariots and the riders. God's saying, I'm going to do it. I'm going to protect you. I'm going, to, I'm going to care for you. I'm going to hold you up. Church, that is the greatest news in the gospel, that it's all God and not us. And see, that's what's so dangerous when we start to mix in the things that, that Jim was praying for us, with us this morning, is that is it's so easy for us to begin thinking, it's, well, we do our part, God does his part, and then it all works out. Guess what? We can't do our part. That's why the gospel is such good news. God does 100%. I love what one theologian says. The only thing we bring to salvation is the sin we need to be saved from. (laughs) That's humbling. But that's the truth of the gospel. And that's what we see in a book like Haggai, the promise of God's love. Notice there's a language that God uses about this shaking and this overthrowing and this destroying. He uses it on the verse 23. He says, on that day. Did you ever hear language like that before? Sure you have. All throughout the Bible, specifically through the prophets, they talk about the day of the Lord on that day in this very book. And and, and in the other prophets as well, we have this language of on that day. Well, what is that day? The day day that God's kingdom will be made known, the overthrowing of the earthly kingdoms. Think about your own situation right now. Wouldn't you love to see all your enemies defeated? (laughs) And I'm not just talking about your human enemies. I'm not just talking about your neighbor that lets his dog do his business on your yard. <laughs> I'm talking about your real enemies, your flesh, right? The world that presses in temptation, the devil. I mean, to hear news that ultimately on that day there is victory from our enemies, this is good news. Theologian um, by the name of Sinclair Ferguson. It's a guy I deeply, deeply love to read. And he's actually a living guy. You guys know I love a lot of old dead guys. He's a living one. And this is what Sinclair Ferguson says. Uh, He says, God will sovereignly and finally intervene on that day in the affairs of the world history. It doesn't mean he's not involved now, but on that day it will be unique. And we look forward to that day. We anticipate that day. And we're like the people of Haggai's day say, Lord, when? When will that day be? I want my enemies destroyed. I want to know that there is going to be ultimate victory. Lord, when? The description of that day is that the Lord will shake the heavens and the earth. And we read from Hebrews, which talked about the shaking. 
Did you know that Scripture talks about the shaking of the heaven and earth a lot? But notice that that shaking is, is at the very moment when they're building the temple, when they're doing what they're supposed to be doing. And so out of that moment of doing what you're supposed to be doing, they're refocused, they're worshiped, their, their attention's back on God, and they start to realize the blessings God has bestowed on them, the blessing God himself is to them. And guess what? They start to think about the more blessings God has promised, and they begin to wonder, Lord, when will you restore the kingdom? We're back to the land, we're building the temple, but this is nearly not everything what we were told because we know we were disobedient. Will we ever experience all the blessings that you promised? You can imagine like a child getting in trouble who finally gets out of their room from time out. They're a little more cautious. They don't just assume that they're back in their parents' goods graces. That's the people of this day. They're like, Lord, we're rebuilding the temple. We, we know that ultimately we've been in exile. We've experienced, we've experienced difficulty because of our sin. But will we ever experience the fullness of of your promises and blessings, they're beginning to wonder, Lord, will we ever know that? See, they're really asking a question, even though we were disobedient, even though we were in exile, even though we returned and we were disobedient again by not making the main thing the main thing, Lord, will we still see all the promises you made to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to David? Will we as a people get to see that And you know what Haggai is going to say? Yes. Think how sweet and awesome that is. Even in spite of your sin, even the fact that you were unfaithful, I'm faithful. That's what God's saying. I'm trustworthy, and I'm loving, and I'm gracious, and I'm kind. See, God is showing his faithfulness to his promises God is showing that ultimately he is faithful. And this is something he said again and again and again. He will destroy their enemies. Jeremiah, he said it. And Daniel, he said it. I will destroy. And now we get it again. Haggai, I will destroy your enemies. God is showing his faithfulness in spite of the people's unfaithfulness. Do you hear that this morning? Church, that's the gospel. That's the simple truth of the gospel. God is faithful even when we are not. Praise God for a gospel that preaches that. 100%. That's truly good news. So here's the key point. God will faithfully fulfill his promises. He will overcome all of his and our enemy, every enemy. He will raise up a people unto himself. And one of the ways he's going to do it, he's going to shake the earth. He's going to shake up the earth. He's going to overthrow. He's going to destroy. These are words that he uses. But I want you to hear these words, overthrow, shake, destroy. Not as though God is creating confusion. What I want you to really see is that God is bringing order from the confusion. See, out there, world we live in, it's confused. Can I get an amen to that? It's confused. And oftentimes what we begin to assume what we begin to think is that ultimately they're, they're right and we're wrong. <laughs> Something's wrong with this book. Something's wrong with what we believe. Something's wrong with what mom and dad are teaching me about Jesus and, and the truth of the gospel. Guess what? No, God is saying, guess what? I'm going to bring order to the disorder. That's a beautiful picture of what God did at creation. And friends, that's exactly what God is doing in recreation. 
God is bringing order to the disorder. And to do that, he needs to shake things up. He needs to overthrow. He needs to destroy the forces around us. So I ask you this morning some important questions. The first question is this. How have you personally experienced God's faithfulness in your life? Don't don't just sit there. Think about that. How have you personally experienced God's faithfulness in your life? What are the ways in which God has shown himself to be faithful? And let me add the caveat to that, especially when you have been unfaithful. In the times of your life where you've been disobedient, unfaithful, how has God showed himself to be faithful? Friends, let me tell you, he has, because God doesn't change. God is faithful. He's faithfully loving. He's faithfully just. He's perfect in his, in his disposition towards his children. He's perfect. I wish as a dad I could be like that. Because sometimes I fly off the handle when I shouldn't, and other times I let stuff go when I shouldn't. <laughs> but God is just perfect. He's a perfect father, and he's perfectly to be trusted, and he has been faithful to you in every respect. I don't care who else has let you down. Maybe some of you have grown up in homes where parents have let you down, or, or neighbors, or friends, or coworkers, or bosses, or whatever. God has never let you down. And I want you this morning to see in the book of Haggai God's faithfulness to you as his people. And one of the ways God is faithful is that God is faithful not only in doing the shake-up, if you will, this overthrow, this destroy, but God is, is also faithful in providing a king who will rule that kingdom that is advancing. And what's interesting in our text is that God begins to focus the direction on Zerubbabel. <laughs> and you begin to scratch your head and say, he's the guy? <laughs> This guy was disobedient. <laughs> this guy was part of the problem. He was, he was busy building his house with paneling rather than building the house of the Lord. And he was a governor. He was supposed to be doing the right thing. But ultimately what we see is God's grace to one who didn't deserve it. And this should speak volumes to us this morning. That God shows grace to the people who don't deserve it. And I want you to see the language that God uses. It's not, it's not conditional. Hey, Zerubbabel, if you do this, then this. That's not the way the language goes. Look at the language, verses 23 and 24. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant. And then he goes on to say, I will make you like a signet ring. I have chosen you. Do you see those words? None of that is conditional. All of that is unconditional. All of it is is based upon God's faithfulness to his people, specifically this unfaithful governor. And he's saying, I'm going to do this work in and through you. This is absolutely amazing when you look at it because one of the very first things we see is God says, I will take you. God is the initiator. Friends, isn't God the initiator of our salvation? We love because he first what? Loved us. And the the truth of the text here is that God is going to Zerubbabel. He says, I'm going to take you. I'm going to make you. Friends, understand this very simply. We can do nothing to earn God's favor. Nothing we can do can be attractive to God when it's done under our own power. It's only attractive when it's given through the person and work of Jesus Christ, which makes it perfect. We're reminded of this in Romans chapter 9, verse 16, 
When the Apostle Paul says, so then it depends not on human will or exertion. Do you hear that? It depends not upon human will or exertion, but upon God who has mercy. From beginning to end, it's all of God. And this is exactly what God is telling Zerubbabel. He says, I will take you. And notice this, he goes, I'm going I'm I'm to make you a signet ring. What does he mean by that? Well, the word signet ring is really the idea of a seal. Think of a stamp uh, placed on a, an envelope that, that makes sure that everybody knows this is official document from the king. You're going to be my seal, Zerubbabel. You're going to be my representative authority. Now, where do we get that kind of language? Well, actually, you can find it all the way back in Genesis. Genesis chapter 41, where Joseph is literally given a ring, a signet ring of Pharaoh. He's going to rule in Pharaoh's stead. In fact, he's taken on, on Pharaoh's chariot all throughout Egypt so everybody sees how special and the privilege and the role he has. And that's what God is saying about Zerubbabel? That you're going to be my king. You're going to be in my stead. And there's another reason why this is so important because not too long ago, back in the book of Jeremiah, chapter 22, Specifically, God was speaking to the line of a, of a king of Judah by the name of Jehoiakim. And he's basically saying, in verse 24, it says, Though you were a signet ring on my, on my finger, I will tear you off. Because of their sin, God saying, I'm done with you. And he sends them into exile. But now that they've come out of exile because of God's grace, what God, guess what God's doing? I'm going to take this one's rubble, and he is going to be my signet ring. Friends, understand, Zerubbabel wasn't better in many ways than Jehoiakim. They were both sinners. And what we see is God's grace upon Zerubbabel that God would do this. That God actually is going to use him as his representative of his power. And then finally, God uses language about him. He says, I've chosen you. And that, that's as much as that's a, wow, God chose me. I'm special, right? He's adopted me and his family. There's also some weight to that. What God is saying, so therefore, because I chose you, you're going to be my representative. You're going to do my will. Do you hear that this morning? See, one who's been redeemed by grace, one who's been changed, they live lives of gratitude by ultimately following the will of their Redeemer. Their desire is to live for him. A servant can't do whatever he chooses. He must submit to his master. And ultimately, Zerubbabel was to submit to the will of God. Paul reminds us of this also in Romans 9 at the end of verse 20 and the beginning of verse 21. Listen to what he says. What, what will, I'm sorry, will what is molded say to the molder, why have you made me like this? Will what the, will the mold say to the molder, why have you made me like this? Has not the potter no right over the clay? See, what, what Paul's saying is ultimately God is the one who's in charge. Our job is to seek to be responsible and faithful to the one who has called and chosen us to be his servants. There's a message here for the church that we need to wake up and recognize we can't do anything to earn God's favor. But now that we've received God's favor, we sure should live for his gratitude, out of gratitude for him. We sure should strive to please him. Because he is worthy of all of our love and affection. Who loves us like God loves us? The answer, no one. Some of us have had wonderful parents. And we've been really loved. Or we have a wonderful spouse. And we know what real love is. God loves you better than that. Those are sinful people loving you. 
God is sinless in his love for you. His love is perfect. And so therefore, what response should he get but all of us? We should be in awe of God's mercy this morning. And we should be in absolute awe of the way in which he loves us because we're not worthy of that love. But he loves us despite us. So church, let me ask you a question. How does the good news of God's undeserving grace towards you, his love towards you, how does that encourage you this morning? How does it help you? How does it strengthen you in your walk, in your fidelity, in your obedience to him? Not to try to earn his favor because you already have it. You didn't do anything to get it in the first place. Just out of a heart of reverence and love and respect for him, that he loves you so well. How are you encouraged this morning to love God in a new way? See, that's what we would have expected from Zerubbabel. Guys, I wish I could say Zerubbabel went on to live a happy life. <laughs> but, but the truth is, as you pick up in the rest of the prophets, guess what? The people just fall back into the same sins. There's something called syncretism. You've heard me use that word before. They begin to marry together the worship of God with the worship of idols, the culture the pagan worship. And they start to say, well, we're going to worship God and the culture together, and we're going, to, we're going to make it fit. Well, guess what? God spews that out of his mouth. And that's exactly what eventually happens to the people yet again. And so the people eventually have to start to go, well, I guess Zerubbabel wasn't the one ultimately who was going to bring in the day of the Lord. <laughs> he was just a picture or a foreshadow of, one, of the one who would come. And interesting enough, if you look in Matthew chapter 1, verses 12 and 13, or if you happen to be in Luke chapter 3 one day and you're just reading through the genealogies, one of the things you'll notice is that in the line of the one who did come, the one who is perfect is a name, and that name is Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel's found in the line of Christ. And it was from Zerubbabel's line that Christ did come because Zerubbabel is added in there as a show of God's grace, just like, just like a woman named Rahab. If you don't know the story of Rahab, look it up. Read about her lifestyle and how God ultimately redeems her and she's grafted in. These are pictures of God's grace in the story of the one who would come, the ultimate king who would fulfill all of the promises and meet the day of the Lord. And this is a picture of Jesus Christ, the one who comes when Jesus is first coming and his second coming, we see this perfect picture of the kingdom of God breaking in. See, in Christ's first coming, we see him being sent by the Father. In John chapter 20, verse 21, we see Jesus saying, as the Father has sent me, so I send you. Jesus is admitting ultimately here in, in his mediatorial work, is his work as, as our mediator between God and man, he was sent by the Father to do this task. And he says, here I am. I'm sent by the Father, and so I'm sending you. And the very interesting part about this work of Jesus is that he is the perfect signet ring. He is the perfect seal of God. Listen to what Paul writes in Colossians 1.15. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn of all creation. And if that weren't enough, the writer of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, he says this about Jesus. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint 
of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making perfection or purification for our sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Notice that Jesus is the perfect imprint of God in human flesh. Jesus is God and man. He took on human flesh so that he could be our mediator, so that he could die for our sin. And Jesus is the perfect stamp of God on us. And notice even this, Jesus himself in his humanity as he was the mediator for us submits to the will of the Father. Listen to what it says in Luke 22, verse 42. Not by my will, but your will be done. Not my will, but your will be done. You see him fulfilling all of what Zerubbabel was supposed to do. What all the other kings of Israel and Judah were supposed to do, but failed to do, Jesus fulfills perfectly. And get this, church, he did this in his first coming. He initiated the the movement of the kingdom. He initiated the overthrowing of this world, the reorganizing, the, the reordering, the restructuring of this world. That's what Jesus initiated in his first coming And he will do it in fulfillment perfectly by his second coming. See, we know that he will overthrow all powers. We know that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Here's an important point this morning that I want to remind you. We see God shaking the nations in our text. We read about it in Hebrews. We read about this fact that God will shake things up. And guess what? He does this in and through the gospel. The good news of Christ, he's shaking the world up through the gospel. Both the physical kingdoms that are being shaken up as missionaries go and lives are changed and whole, whole cultures are changed by that gospel. He even is changing, as one theologian said, the, ideology, uh, the ideologies of this world. All the false teaching, as people become, uh, in, in, become saved, to use, to use our vernacular, become born again, Guess what? They begin to flee the ideologies of the world. They begin to see the fake facade, the brokenness that those things offer, and they repent of that, and they run to Jesus. That's what it is that Jesus is doing as he's turning the world upside down. And that's exactly what the writer of Hebrews was saying in Hebrews 12, 28 this morning when he said, therefore, let us be grateful. Let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that can never be shaken, Because the kingdom we have is the perfect kingdom because we have a perfect king who overcomes all of the enemies we could ever face. But here's the problem. Too often we sit in these pews and we're silent. And part of the reason we're silent is because maybe deep down inside we begin to think God is powerless. Maybe we think outside is stronger Maybe we begin to think that the ungodly will actually prosper. Church, I'm here to tell you this morning, we must trust God. We must trust God even in the face of when it looks like the enemy is building or striking or winning. He's not. God never loses. God is absolutely sovereign. He is sovereign in whatever you're facing this morning. Whatever difficulty you're going through, whatever hardship your family knows, whatever our country, our world experiences, God is sovereign. He is king over all. Abraham Kuyper said, there is not one square inch where Jesus cannot say, 
this is mine. There is not one square inch. Think about the reality of that in your own life. There is not one square inch of your life that Jesus doesn't say, mine. So church, let me ask you this morning, are you bowing down to King Jesus in every area of your life, even in your fears, the things you're worried about, the things that concern you? Are you truly trusting Jesus or are you trying to work things out on your own? That's something that challenges me every day, especially as a pastor. Am I trusting King Jesus? This is his church, not mine. You're his people, not mine. I serve King Jesus, and so do you. The areas of responsibility he's given over to you, your job is to submit to his authority, to trust him, to rely on him in every area of your life. So I ask you, are you submitting to King Jesus in every aspect of your life? He already owns it. He's already victor over it. Are you submitting to him? See, one of the most encouraging aspects of this book, the little book of Haggai, two short chapters, is we get to see God's gracious faithfulness to all of his promises, even in spite of unfaithful people. <laughs> Isn't that awesome? Because we are a bunch of unfaithful people, but guess what? God is still faithful. And God's people were disciplined for their sin. They were sent into exile. But God was faithful to his promises. Seventy years later, in his timing, not theirs, they were able to get out of that exile. And even when they came back from exile, guess what? They sinned against him yet again. They didn't keep the main thing the main thing. That's one of the major things we've been saying through this book. Keep the main thing the main thing. They didn't keep that. They didn't keep the worship of God as the main thing. But guess what? God was gracious. God was gracious yet again because he corrected them through the prophet Haggai who said, consider your ways. Consider your ways. And when the people finally responded appropriately and rightly and they began to rebuild the temple and they began to wonder about all the other aspects of the promise, will God still give us? Will God still provide? Guess what? God shows them his faithfulness even in spite of their own faithfulness. And he points to one who will come. One from the line of Zerubbabel. One who is the ultimate perfect king who will not lack anything. The one who will destroy all of his and our enemies for us. Friends, this should encourage us this morning. It should encourage us to rejoice in the words of Paul where Paul says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Jesus Christ. Church, that's a promise that God makes to his people. He will bring it to completion. He will do the work. He will make it possible. He who began a good work in you will bring it about. Church, be encouraged in your God this morning. May your eyes and hearts truly be focused on him. May we praise him because he is faithful even when we're not. As we close, I just want to read to you from our own confessional statement, the Westminster Confession. If you're not spending any time in that book, I'd encourage you to not... It doesn't replace the Bible, but it does clearly help the teaching for us to understand what the teaching of the Bible is. And it's got a beautiful part in here about the purpose of work of Christ. It's in chapter 8. It's in section 1. And it'll be on the screen. And I just want to read it together if we could do that. So they're going to put it on the screen. And let's read this together. It pleased God in His eternal purpose to choose and ordain the Lord Jesus his only begotten Son, 
to be the mediator between God and man, the prophet, priest, and king, the head and savior of his church, the heir of all things, and judge of the world, unto whom he did from all eternity give a people to be his seed and to be by him in time redeemed, called, justified, sanctified, and glorified. Do you hear that this morning? In God's time, we will be redeemed. We will be called. We will be justified. We will be sanctified. And yes, we will be glorified. To whom God has given salvation, these things will happen. Church, may our eyes and hearts be fixed upon him, the perfect prophet, priest, and king, Jesus Christ, our only hope. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are encouraged from this little book. We're encouraged by these messages to remind us of the love and faithfulness you have for such unfaithful people. God, there is not a one of us in this room that does not sin daily and that we need a Savior and you have provided that perfect Savior in our Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we're thankful for all that Christ provides. May our hearts be warmed to him. May our eyes be fixed upon him. May we truly understand that from beginning to end, the salvation you provide is solely from you. We pray this in Jesus' name and God's people said. This has been a podcast of First Presbyterian Church in Trenton, Michigan. For more information, please visit us online at fpchurch.tv.